I had forgotten to uh, turn the recorder on the audio, but I just now did. Probably had a good time where we we're talking about definitions and terms here. Anybody know when we started? Can you tell on that how long we've been on? About 25 minutes. 25 minutes, okay. So we're going to be talking about various words. We're going to talk about, as an example, this is not all the words, the word elect and chosen. Now, in the text that we read, according as he hath chosen us in him, we use the word chosen. There'll be other words that are like choose, elect, and so on and so forth. He has chosen us in him as a verb in that sentence. We'll talk about chosen as a noun. The chosen, talking about the chosen people. So we'll use that as a noun there. So we'll look at choose, chosen, We'll look at elect, elected, we'll look at nouns and action words. There were some other words that were used talking about foreordination, uh, predestination. We'll be digging into all those words. And not only that, we'll look at, of course, we'll look at definitions. And uh, we will look at, you know, we're big on distinctions and we want to make distinctions. And not only that, after we lay out distinctions, we want to talk about implications, which I think are very important. We, we carry out a thought and, and see the trajectory of, you know, is it congruent with or is it parallel? Is it harmonious with the rest of Scripture? And if it's not, we want to show why. We show why it errs and where it errs and what it makes God look like. That's the important part. Let me give you a working definition here of unconditional election. I think I had a larger one before. This is... Tone down and see what you think about this. Because the only true God has purposed to reveal the glory of his redemptive character in eternal salvation, he has chosen a definite number of individuals before the world was created, conditioning their election upon Jesus Christ. The basis of God's sovereign choice of the elect was not in man's actions, works, or foreseen faith, but solely by the Father setting them apart by his free and sovereign grace accepted in Christ alone. I'll go over that when we go on other future messages, but this would be a definition I would give somebody if somebody wanted one in writing. I'll probably post this on Facebook this week and one thing we want to remember during this series and, and from the onset is that the doctrine of unconditional election is Christ-centered. I hope you heard it in the definition. We know, we have it on the wall back there, that in all things he might have preeminence, Colossians 1.18. We know he has preeminence in all things, creation, salvation, and even aspects of salvation, even in election. We're going to get to why, you know, everybody said, well, the father elects. We'll get there. Christ has preeminence in election. It's all about Christ. Everything is all about Christ. The sovereign God has declared the end from the beginning. What is the end? I mean, you look in, for example, I thought of this last week when we were talking about worship. You think about uh, in heaven. We've talked about the goofy ideas people have about heaven, you know, about things. But you look at the language, how that it talks about Christ in heaven. There is a lot of bowing down to him. <laughs> there is a lot of 
everything focused on him, lifting him up. It's all about Christ. It's like everything shuts up and you finally come to clarity on it's about Christ. Uh, can we be smart enough, wise enough to say, well, if it's about Christ then, and we can see a clear picture of that, between now and then, let's, let's back that up and deal with that like from now until then and have the same attitude. When we talk about God, when we use his name, when we talk about his gospel, we talk about his person, his work. Is it that serious to you? How do we even, how, as far as saying his name, spelling his name, talking about his attributes, guarding and protecting his gospel, the cross, glorying in the cross. Do you think if you knew more about the cross, the details about the cross, you would glory more in the cross? I think, yeah. And is it a is it a chore to glory in the cross? It should be the greatest joy. And therefore, the more you know of him and his cross, the more joy you would get out of glorying in the cross. And election is part of taking us to the cross. You can't take out election in that, that whole matter. Another thing, unconditional election is for all believers. This is something that's, that's out there, and it's out there a lot. It's widespread that there is this a hiding or a covering of election as if it's just some type of thing for maybe seminary graduates or those with PhDs or those that read those big, thick, systematic theology books, you know, and the, the dirty word doctrine theology, those people that mess with that stuff. And they would um, treat it as a secondary issue. And they would uh, tend not to mention it. They would tend to, as we mentioned before, avoid texts that deal with it, just kind of breeze over it, and give all kind of excuses. I'll give you a few. Maybe we'll go into this more in detail later. But they talk about how that election is a mystery. Now, it's not a mystery to the believer. That doesn't mean the believer is going to be an expert on it. He's going to know exhaustively about it. If everybody did, I wouldn't be teaching this. And I know there's some stuff in this series that I'm going to learn as I'm studying for the series that I learn not different then, but since then, about election. So it's something you can not only learn, but grow in. But unconditional election is something that is, that is not to be hidden. It is to be broadcast. And it is something that we're not ashamed of. And we see part of the grace of God. It is the sovereign grace of God. So it's not, it's not to be hidden it's not uh, mysterious. It's mysterious to the unbeliever because he has a carnal, natural mind. He doesn't have the Spirit of God dwelling in him to show him, reveal him truth. There are certain um, aspects of just the intellectual human logic of reading English words and seeing when somebody was elected to what. We just read in the text about... Uh, these people that they were talking about, we can see they were saints, so they were believers, that they were elected, chosen by God, 
before the foundation of the world. Now, you can, you can be lost and know that. If you just grasp intellectually that fact, that's not salvation. Salvation is election tied to the cross. The cross is where the gospel centers in on. The grace of God and the cross of Christ. And election gets us there. So if we, if we mess that election up, if we derail and make election conditional and works-oriented, we won't, we won't even get to the cross. The cross is going to have, by the time we get there, the cross is going to have something wrong with it that you have to do because that's the way it started out. God saw that you would believe, and then all of a sudden faith is not of grace, and it's not a gift. It's something that you were able to do, and then you, that's tied to universal atonement, of course, and it's upset from the beginning. It's off the tracks. Another thing that's often said that election or any other of the doctrines of grace are meat. They're meat and not milk. No. Election is throughout the Bible. It's, it's established well in the Old Testament in the nation of Israel. We're going to touch on that. And that idea weaves throughout the whole scripture. It's all over the place. The amount of times that it's mentioned and the diversity of words that's used to support the idea is there. And the tie-in to the cross, and the tie-in to just grace, it can't be avoided. Now, some would look at it that way and maybe say both, that it's, it, it's meat and it's mystery. They would say those two things because they would like say it's hard what it is, it's not liked. It's resisted. Not by believers. But it's perhaps resisted maybe in churches where there's a mix of believers and unbelievers. But especially we know it's resisted in churches full of unbelievers. They would counter what we teach about it. So it's not mysterious. It's not meat. It is offensive to the natural man. It's part of the offense of the gospel. It's why those that are bold in preaching the gospel are hated and persecuted. So there are some elementary things. I just want to run through this preview real quick of some things I have listed. And, and these would be the things that you would want to maybe put some stuff in between and add to that I need to cover for. And I'm going to add my own. Uh, this is not everything. We're going to look at unconditional election and the attributes of God. There should be some that come to mind right away, the sovereignty of God, right? And this is specifically the sovereignty of God in salvation. The most One of the most objectable, uh, offensive things about God that anyone would ever hear. There are other, there are other attributes that are going to, we're going to see how they tie in. We're going to talk about the absolute sovereignty of God in all things. We're not going to spend too much time there because we're going to narrow this down to salvation and hang out in that area, talk about salvation, camp out there. We're going to talk about his decree, his purpose, his counsel, his will, and his glory and all that. 
why that's important, why that must stay intact, why we can't let people affect or take that down or mess with that. That text that we started reading, Eric read all of it in chapter 1. Sometimes when you have the time, read that on your own. And I've done this in here years ago. If you read the personal pronouns of God in there and stress those as you read, it's outstanding. It stands out of who this is about. We're going to look at uh, sort of an offshoot of his purpose decree, counsel, and his will, we're going to look at the fact that this thing of election is not fatalism. It's not fatalistic. It's not determinism without a purpose. This is God doing things with a purpose. And again, as I mentioned, his, his main concern is his own glory in reference to the death of Christ. His goal is to glorify himself as one theologian had said, I think it was Dr. Robert Raymond said in his uh, systematic theology, his overarching purpose in all things is to glorify himself in the death of his son. And then, uh, and I made up that phrase that, that has helped me and has helped other people. It's easy to remember. Christ must die, therefore Adam must fall. This, the whole thing is about his death. And if you don't understand the effectual death of Christ, you will not understand that statement. You'll think it's foolish. So it's not fatalistic, in other words. He knows the end from the beginning, and he sees the end. He, the, the end is his glory, and all the way through is his glory, too. But it's not fatalistic. There is a purpose. It's not random. It's not chaotic or doesn't make sense. It's a mystery to everybody else, but his people are, are clued in on it when that verse we quoted was the Second Corinthians 4 6. The God who called the light to shine out of darkness has shined in your hearts to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what happens. And then you get in on this, what we were just talking about. And you see the glory, you see God's. He's not messing around. He knows what he's doing, and he shows you what he's doing, and you see how it works, and you say, oh, I understand. And then the rest of your life, you crave that. You want to learn more about that, and you fuel off of that. You fuel off of him accomplishing that, and you worship God in spirit and truth because of that. We're going to look at the eternal everlasting covenant of grace, how that before time, God in his own counsel, purpose to do these things. Chose Christ to be the one representative and surety, the one who is the elect, and those that were elected were elected in him. Uh, the manner in which they were elected were in him, because of him, for his sake, conditioned on him. It's all about Christ. We're going to look at the who, what, when, where, and why of that everlasting covenant of grace. We're going to look at the promise of salvation conditioned on Christ. What is that? Titus, the first couple of verses, talks about before eternal times, the God who cannot lie promised this eternal life. And this is in reference to he conditioned salvation on Christ alone. That's the promise of the gospel. Without that promise, there is no gospel. Because if it's not Christ alone, it's 
it's not good news. It's bad news. You cannot do it. You can't perform. We have to say, he is my performance. He's my wisdom, righteousness, redemption, sanctification. It's conditioned on him. We'll look at many, many texts. Some people, I asked some people to search for me and on a, on a group page. And, and I said, does anybody know some exhaustive lists? I mean, I could do the work. I just do the word searches. But I know there's something already done out there. And sure enough, a couple of links, boom, boom, boom. And there, there they are. And so we'll, we'll look at a lot of those and we'll compare them, we'll contrast them. We'll even look at verses that seem like they oppose what we believe and we'll look into those and we'll show how these things don't contradict. If there's an issue in consistency, it's, it's in our minds and understanding. We'll, we'll blow away the conditional views by using the text in its context to show that it can't mean what they're saying it means. And when we do that, don't be afraid later on to come to me and say, you know, I kind of didn't really, I, I don't know, did you, I don't know if you proved your point good. And you yeah. might have questions. You might ask me more about it. It's fine. I mean, if you don't do that, I would be saddened that you didn't ask me questions. I'm transparent. I want questions. If you don't understand something, don't be afraid to ask questions. We are going to look at unconditional election in connection with the gospel itself. kind of did a message on that within the last couple of years. I don't think I ever did post it. I think it's stuck on my broke computer. Hopefully I'll get that open sometime. But there is a gospel connection to election. And we'll we'll look some at that. Unconditional election, which is the second point in TULIP. It's the U in TULIP. We'll look at unconditional election in reference to the other four points. And we'll see a connect, what connection it has with the other four points. We will look at unconditional election in relation to sanctification. I kind of used a word, a sanctification word in the definition. I don't know if you caught that or not, but we'll talk some of that. We'll look at implications of wrong views of election. We'll look at Arminianism, Pelagianism, Catholic. We'll look at the whole free will idea that comes out of all those. We'll look at texts that have the word all and world in it and other, other words that are used. We will look at, and these are implications of wrong views of election. We'll look at what is truly, really hyper-Calvinism, what that, what that means and how to avoid that and how that we should expose that because we don't want to be associated with that. We'll look at true and false evidences of election. Some, what some people would say would be evidences of election. We'll look at what those are and are not. We will talk about how that election is not merely, some would say this, that election is just omniscience. I've heard it a lot. Oh, yeah, God knows. You know, you start talking about election. Oh, yeah, God knows. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. It's way, it's beyond that. We will also talk about how that election is not justification. It's not the same thing. And we'll talk about 
the relation there and the differences there. The unconditional election of the nation of Israel. Touch on that. We'll talk about the election of Christ. I kind of spoke to that a second ago. The election of him and the appointment of him being the representative of his people and the surety of his people as he goes to be their substitute. We'll talk about what foreknowledge of God means. That's misconstrued a lot. Being foreknown of God. We'll look at the love of God. The love of God comes before election. So we need to go back and grab that and show the connection there. We'll talk about the fact that there's an accusation when we talk about election. They'll say, well, God's no respecter of persons. Well, we'll look at that. We'll unpack that. We'll show, yeah, we agree. We'll show how he's not. And still retain our, the doctrine, the scriptural doctrine of unconditional election. We will look at what we commonly would think this whole series is about, unconditional election unto salvation. That's really the main thing of the whole series. And we will also look at unconditional election unto condemnation. We believe in double predestination. We will look at the book of life. What's that all about? It talks about the book of life. When was that written? When was that, when were names either put in or not put in? We look at, again, other words that are related to uh, foreordination. And um, there are other synonyms and, and different English words and in different translations that are used. We'll look, look at all those. We'll look at predestination. In fact, I just mentioned a second ago, it's double. We will look at God's predestined means that are used. He declares the end from the beginning. Well, there's means from the end from the beginning, and even those means are predestinated by God. He doesn't just plan it at the end and say, well, I want to sit back and see how this turns out. He has declared everything that happens in between. He's appointed everything. We'll look at God and evil. How does that work out? How does God deal with evil? How did evil come into play? What, what does God have to do with that? We'll look at uh, something called equal ultimacy. Is, it, is there, do we agree with that? Is there such thing? We'll look at God's glory in hiding himself. That's kind of a weird thing to people. Me and Ron were talking about a verse yesterday. I thank thee, Father of heaven and earth, that you have hid these things from the wise, but you've revealed them unto babes. These things had to do with him. And we know that there is an aspect of God that he gets glory out of hiding himself, which opposes modern-day evangelism. We will look at the lapsarian issues. We did this last time, and I didn't know how it was going to work last time, and it really went over well. People understood it. They were able to grasp it. We showed the value of it. We didn't talk over anybody's head. We used a chart that was helpful. And we'll be doing that again. And um, it doesn't matter that you can't spell it. You know, what's weird, some people say, you can't even spell superlapsarianism. And these same people will say, we'll talk about dispensationalism all day. Dispensationalism. Got the same amount of letters in it. I counted them. <laughs> but they talk about that. Well, 
even in our lapsarian view, we will see that it is Christ-focused. I mean, if it's not, I'm not messing with it anyway. Uh, just the way I'm starting to see everything. I don't have time. We have to see this Christ-centered, gospel-focused. And uh, hopefully I'll prove that point at the end of people that haven't heard anything about that topic, the lapsarian issue. They'll, they'll see value in it, that it was it's worth looking into, causing us to think and stir our thoughts. Because they'll, you'll see other things. As you're looking at that, you'll see other things in the peripheral that you'll pick up. It's just sad that a lot of people are just not caused to think nowadays. I like to be caused to think. Ron came and he drove 17 hours to, to be here. He's spending the weekend. I had um, meant to get some things cleaned up before he came. And he texted me in the middle of the week. He said, uh, I think I can come this week. And I thought, okay, there is my fuel to get that stuff done. <laughs> That's the way I work. I'm a procrastinator. And when it comes to thinking sometimes we can get lazy in our thoughts but sometimes we're caused we know that god works in us both the will and do his good pleasure he'll bring things into our life or he'll directly deal with us to cause us to think and to start tossing out bad ideas and bringing in his truth that's all i want to do for me and i've talked to some of you and it seems like you're on the same page about that. I mean, that's learning. We want to learn not to just say we're smart. We want to learn because it causes us to worship in a better, clearer, more magnifying way. We magnify his character. We see him clearer. It brings us joy. It brings us assurance. We're, we're fueled by the things of Christ. We will talk about this matter of whether or not there was a covenant of works with Adam or not. Was there or was there not? What was dealt out from God to Adam, was that a promise or was that a threat? Connected with the title there, is there a covenant of works with Adam? We'll look at God's purpose for sin or with sin. What, what is the deal there? And I've heard, I brought this up before recently, like some preachers say, you know, if you like me, I can't understand why God permitted sin to come into the world. Well, because they don't understand what we talked about earlier. God's overarching purpose is to glorify himself in the death of Christ. Christ must die, therefore Adam must fall. There's your answer. And unless you understand that death as being effectual and accomplished and finished and sufficient in and of itself, you're not going to grasp any of that. Like language like in scripture where it talked about that he was going to Jerusalem to accomplish his decease. You don't talk like that about our death. We don't accomplish our death. Christ accomplished his decease. I got the power to lay it down and take it up again. He said, you know, everything's written in a volume, a book to do your will. And he, he concluded, I've come to die. I'm the lamb that was talked about. I'm the one to take away, to put away the sin of his people. So we'll see the purpose, God's purpose with sin. And then we'll get down toward the bottom there and the final parts of the series. And we'll talk about 
common grace versus particular grace. We'll dig into some, maybe some of that history, some of the particulars and implications of, of what some call common grace, and we'll, we'll see that. We'll, we'll also look at the twofold purpose of the hearing of God's word. Usually people look at it, and they only look at some kind of humanistic positive side that results in salvation, but we forget about the promise that there is a second purpose of the word of God, and that's in reference to the non-elect. We'll see all that. In the conclusion of the series, we will look at how does election affect evangelism. Election is tied to all kinds of things. And it is definitely tied to evangelism. Now, some would, we alluded to earlier, uh, one of the things we want to expose is hyper-Calvinism, which historically hyper-Calvinism is. You believe all things are predestinated, so God has chosen his people. We only have, don't even have to believe they're going to go to heaven because God chose them, Christ died for them, and just we're fatalistic and just hands off, no means. Anti-missionary, anti-preaching, who cares? They're going to be saved. That's that fatalistic view where they have gutted the means from the beginning to the end and somehow this is just going to take place out of sheer sovereignty without us having God glorified in our minds concerning what he has accomplished. So we're going to guard against that. But that is the accusation. They think we believe in predestination and that's what they accuse us of believing. But we're going to show, no, we, we, we don't. And we're not going to uh, humanistically overreact and put everything on man's lap and say that man has these abilities that he doesn't and expect dead men to do tricks. You know, dead men can't do tricks. They're dead. So we'll talk about the free or well-meant offer of the gospel. We'll talk about this idea of the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God, how these things, if they go together, and if they do, how. And we'll talk about views of that. We'll talk about whether the gospel is an invitation, a command, an offer, or a declaration, or a combination of some of those. We'll ask questions about what is this thing of duty faith? Do we have a duty to believe? We'll ask those questions. We'll, we'll look and see. Some want to talk about a, a, a law-gospel distinction and ask the question in reference to some of these things about duty and commands to believe versus uh, invitations. And we, Are we going to say that the gospel is a law that must be believed? The gospel is not the law, but... The appeal in reference to doing something with the gospel is a law. So that'll come in. We'll look at that. We'll look at what whosoever means, because that one's thrown to us a lot. We believe in election and first thing. Whosoever will. You know, so we'll look at that, who that's talking about. We'll look at basically the heart of it. This even goes up front to the first part of the series of God's intention. What is God's intention in saving and choosing and doing what he does in reference to people in this thing about salvation, uh, election or non-election. What's his intention? Does he state clearly what his intention is? And then the last 
section. And, and again, I'm just, I'm going to add to this, probably might change some things around, but the last one would be hard text to deal with and sincere people that deal with them. We're going to look at hard text no matter what, but we're going to look at the issue of what about sincere people that deal with the hard text? And I kind of already dealt with that in my introduction. I'll just give you a little bit more tidbit on that. Mark 4.11. Why do you speak in parables? We've talked about that here recently. And most people think, yeah, I know why. So everybody can understand. Because God wants everybody to be saved, right? That's what they say. And so he speaks in parables so everybody can more easily understand. And his answer there is completely the opposite. The Lord Jesus Christ, the living word of God, says the opposite of what the world is saying about the reason for that. So this is tied to the glory of God in hiding himself. It's tied to the dual purpose of the word of God. It's tied to non-election, double predestination. It's tied to all that. It's, it's just, uh, I'll tell you, this is hard doing this because of the overlap and what it's tied to. I'm going to repeat some things. And um, you're going to have to forgive me for that. Any uh, questions or comments? I I'll put this list on our church page. And um, by next week, I'm going to have a lot more stuff on here. If you see some things you can um, add in there, of course, that'll be in the comment boxes, and I'll take them, and I'll, I'll add them up there, and we'll lengthen the list of something we may have forgotten. And if you know of any charts that you see, the one on the Lapsarian thing I found in B.B. Warfield's Plan of Salvation. That's the one we used last time. Perkins, he had a, it's from the 1600s, he had a chart on something about the, the decrees, the, the cause of damnation, a chart, an old chart. And I've got access to that. We can use that. I'll get everybody copies. But any kind of charts that show contrasting views of groups of people, what they hold to, would be helpful for us to visually see and reference. I mean, we'll, we'll check and see if they're accurate. David wrote an article, I have it on the Superlapsarian blog. It's not a chart, but it talks about degrees and different views, uh, for lack of a better idea. And it was stated in the terms of low Calvinism, high Calvinism. So, you know, the low Calvinistic side would be the more compromising, the more that is kind of like going downhill towards conditions. And the high Calvinist view would be uh, what we hold to without dropping the means, staying within the biblical idea of maintaining God using means to save his people. Any questions or comments before we uh, roll on? Yeah. Just one thing, Scott, you, you mentioned a bunch of things that you mentioned about intention. Yeah. And it, it reminded me of what we were talking about last night about you know, what, why God chooses, why God elects, why he's saved. And I just wanted to share something real quick here in, in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, starting in verse 4, it says, But God, being, being rich in mercy, here's the reason right here, because of the great love 
with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace we've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here it is, here's why. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That he wants to blow us away. Right. About how great his son is. Why? Yeah, and we we were talking about that last night, um, about even after we pass on to the other side of learning, and there'll be an advantage because we have a different mindset. We'll be without sin in our mind. We'll have a little more clarity of thought. But um, I've got some questions about the particulars about propitiation and what went on there where when God turned the lights out and that activity that was going on between the Father and Son. I want to see that. I want to, yeah. if, if I'm allowed, you know, it's glorious to me. I think about it all the time. It beats all the other miracles, pretty much. <laughs> Anything else? All right, anybody got a song?